Would you join me as we pray? Oh, great God, you are great. It is appropriate for us to sing such words to you. Because if there's anything in this universe that's great, it's you. There's nothing that we know that compares to you. There's nothing that begins to touch the edge of your majesty and your power. There's nothing that even closely resembles your beauty and your awesome might, your holiness, your grandeur. You are great. And you're greatly to be praised. And that's why we've come today. We've come because we desire in our hearts to worship you. We've come because we recognize you are the God who created us, the one who made us, who made everything that we know and experience. And not only made it, but you're the one who rules everything you've made, including our very lives. And so we come, Lord, as, as your children. We come as your people who, who bow before you and look to you as our maker, who look to you as our sustainer, who look to you for every single need of our lives. And Lord, we've come together as your people from all different lives, from all different families, from all different experiences, even this past week. And, and we all come, Lord, at, at different places in our life, you know, with different kinds of needs, feeling different sorts of emotions this morning. In most cases, Lord, our deepest needs, our, our deepest feelings are only known to us, hidden from those who sit around us. We only see our smiles on the outside. But Lord, you know us. You know us in the depths of who we are. And we've come this morning bringing all of ourselves to you. Asking you, O oh Lord, to be the one who, who meets us in the very depths of, of what we need. Who fills us where we need filling. Who encourages us in the places where we need encouragement. Who, who challenges us in those areas of our life that this morning need a challenge. And yes, even that you would be the one who would expose to us a sin that might be harbored in our lives, that we might bring it forth to you in confession and repentance this morning. Lord, we've come to deal with you and, and no one else ultimately today. For that's what worship is about. It's not about us, it's about you. And so we bow before you and we offer you our very lives today. And Lord, it's our great privilege to open your word and to, to study. We thank you for your word, for the treasure that it is to us. We thank you that you've not left us to try and figure out life on our own, but you've given us, you've given us a guide. You've given us your word, your, your full and complete uh, exposure of yourself to us, that we might know you, that we might know you fully and completely, that we might know you and everything that you would expect of us. And so we treasure your word this morning, and it's our great privilege to open it and study it. We pray that as we do so, that by your spirit this morning, you would enlighten our eyes that you would open up our hearts to be receptive to what we hear and to what we see. And that ultimately, Lord, you would change us by it this morning. Lord, that's a work that only you can do. But we confess before you this morning, we're open to that and we're receptive. Give us receptive hearts. Lord, there's a million things that could distract us this morning from hearing what you would have us to hear. So, Lord, we pray for your sovereign power to remove the distractions from our life, that we might be focused solely on you. And what you would have for us this day. We pray for these things through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I want to invite you, if you would, to turn uh, to the Gospel of John chapter 2. That's where we find ourselves this morning. Continuing in our verse-by-verse study of John's Gospel. 
We'll be looking at um, chapter 2, verses 12 through 22 this morning. You know, there are some things in life that you never forget. I imagine you could probably think back on your life experience and uh, there are some events, there are some things that have happened that are, that are just unforgettable. Maybe they happened a long time ago, but, but at the right moment you can, you can recollect everything about that. Uh, if you're like me uh, and your memory is not the best in the world, um, I have a hard time remembering what I did this, this week, but there are certain events in life that have happened that are just unforgettable, that always are there in my memory. And I'm sure you have those. Sometimes we remember things and they, they, they're intact in our memory simply because they're memorable, uh, uh, just because they're funny or because they're humorous. And something uh, funny has happened in your life and you just always remember that funny event. Other things are, are memorable uh, because of some sort of impact they've had on us or because of how they frightened us or because of how just unique they are and how they've shocked us. And we just will never forget them. I, I've got those kind of markers in my life. In, in the funny category, I'll never forget, I was in church um, uh, as a younger man and there was a pastor who was preaching, and he was an older pastor, a senior adult pastor. Uh, but he was a, a real fire and brimstone sort of a pastor. You've seen uh, that, I'm sure. Uh, he was hopping around all over the place, sweating and, and uh, stomping his feet, and every once in a while, you know, pounding on the pulpit a little bit. And, you know, he, he didn't mind just you know, pointing that finger at you. And he was just a real animated sort of a guy. And um, a really great, great pastor. But I'll never forget in the middle of one of his sermons. It was particularly warm that day. I don't know if this had anything to do with it. But he was right in the middle of one of those just, you know, in-your-face, powerful sermons, stomping and, and pointing. And I'll never forget, he was making this one really emphatic point, and he And he pointed right at us. And as he did, and he, you know, he was loud as well, um, his teeth came out. Obviously not his real ones. They came out. But what was so memorable about it was he was pointing with that finger and those teeth came out. He caught him in that hand, threw him back in and just kept right on going. I'm not kidding you. Not kidding you. Nothing in the sermon mattered after that point. But I will never forget that as long as I live. Never. Uh, this guy had a great sense of humor. He told me one day after that, uh, he, also, he also wore a, a hairpiece and... Um, he uh, really, I'm not getting a great pastor, but he, he told me one day in his, in his own sense of humor, he said, listen, when I go to bed at night, all my best parts are on the countertop. <laughs> That's what he told me. I'll never forget it. Um, don't remember half of what I learned in school, but I'll never forget that. Um, it, was, it was one of those memorable moments in the funny category. And I'm sure in your life, you can think about those moments in your life when something just remarkably funny happened and you just don't forget it. Got some other events like that in my life that are more embarrassing. I'll keep to myself, but uh, you know there are other things that happen that you just don't forget. I, I, I remember when I was a kid, we um, had gone on a vacation with some other folks from my um, from our church family at the time, and we'd gone up to North Carolina to go snow skiing, and uh, we we stayed in this little place. And, and uh, I was just a kid, and I remember this, but I remember very vividly walking through the living room of that uh, place where we were staying at the snow play at the snow mountain. And, uh, and looking at the television and watching a space shuttle launch and then watching it explode in midair. Do you remember where you were when that happened? I was a kid. I remember that very vividly to this day. I'll never forget uh, what that felt like and to watch that and even where I was. Um, but there's all kinds of things in our lives that happen that are memorable that you just don't forget because of the impact that they have on you uh, when these things happen. I want to tell you this morning, uh, if you were in Jerusalem uh, in the year A.D. 28 for the Passover, you would have seen something that fits 
these categories, that fits into the category of here's an event that you will not forget, an event that you'll be talking about long after it happened. It was a memorable, memorable moment. It was a Passover unlike any other, and it was, and it was in the context of this that something happens um, that, uh, that was just remarkable. And when it happened, the news of it no doubt spread absolutely like wildfire all throughout the town. And we know that because several years later we see in Scripture people are still talking about it. It's an event that if we were to use today's lingo, it went viral, and it went viral fast. There had been YouTube around in those days. Um, this, 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 this event would have been up on YouTube and it would have gotten millions of hits. If, if Twitter were around in AD 28, everybody would have been tweeting about this. It would have been trending pretty high on the list of Twitter trends. If Instagram was around, there would have been pictures all over the place. It was a, it was a moment that was unforgettable. And it's that moment that we'll look at this morning that John records for us in chapter 2, verses 12 and following. Before we jump into the text, I want to remind you of John's purpose. We can't uh, say this enough. John's purpose, as he clearly states it, is to convince you and to convince me and to convince anyone who reads his book that Jesus Christ, that Jesus... The, the human being that people knew and that, that people in John's day could ex, had experienced in person, that that very Jesus was not just a man, but that he was the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, that he was God in flesh. John's purpose is to convince you of that. And then to, once he's convinced you of that, it's to, to call you to believe upon him that you might have your sins forgiven and receive eternal life. That is John's stated purpose and what he is after. And everything that he records in this gospel is recorded and preserved for that purpose. And so this story, just like any other that we'll look at in John's gospel, needs to be understood in light of that overarching uh, concept that John is trying to advance. And so this is John's this is John's. John's uh, aim, his goal. And we saw last week in the text uh, immediately preceding this, his first piece of evidence. John presents to us his first piece of evidence that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, uh, worthy to be believed upon for eternal life. And that first piece of evidence was his first miracle. Do you remember where that took place? If you were here last week. Yeah, Cana. Okay, you at least got that part, right? Uh, Cana is where it took place. And you remember we watched this first miracle as John reveals it to us, this miracle where Jesus kind of secretively, uh, kind of unassumingly transforms a massive amount of water into wine. And he, he rescues this, this young married couple from social humiliation and possibly even a lawsuit. Um, but it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting miracle that John presents to us, that first one, because it's in Cana. It's in an out-of-the-way place. It's in, a, it's in a town where it's largely populated with poor people, people who are not really anybody in the society. And the miracle he does is largely a private miracle that only a few people, even in that context, knew about, right? And he presents that miracle to us, and he does that to advance his aim. So when he, when he finishes telling us about that, he transports us to the temple in Jerusalem for Passover. And he tells us about a second miraculous thing that Jesus does. And what's remarkable, one of the things that's remarkable about this second thing is its contrast to the first. The second thing that Jesus does is exactly the opposite of everything we just said about the first one. It's, it's not in Cana, an out-of-the-way place. It happens in Jerusalem, the most in place to be, the most populated place. The first miracle Jesus does is largely hidden. Only a few people see it. This next thing that he does, I told you, it's memorable. And it is memorable to anybody who is anywhere near the temple in Jerusalem when it takes place. It is so public you couldn't get more public. 
And it happens not among uh, kind of out of the way, um, uh, uh, sort of less important society wise people. It happens right in the midst of the most important people of the culture. So John gives us a stark contrast in these two events. And both are recorded to us for the same purpose. And, and John gives us a little bit of a, um, a little bit of a uh, in between verse here in verse 17 of chapter, uh, of chapter 2. Wouldn't hurt if I turned to John in my Bible, would it? Um, John chapter 2, verse 17, he tells us this. He says, after this, this is after the miracle at Cana that we talked about last week. He says, after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. So this is a, a, John just keeping us going with the time frame here. He says, after he leaves Cana, after all that happened at the wedding, uh, Jesus' disciples, his brothers, um, all of the, the whole crowd, uh, they, they all head out to Capernaum. Now, just to give you a little map so you can see uh, kind of the trajectory here. Um, Capernaum was where, is where he ends up going. You see Cana down here by the eye in Galilee. So they go on up to Capernaum, which is right on the Sea of Galilee. And they stay there for uh, just a few days. A couple of the disciples were from Capernaum. That was their hometown. So they go up there and they spend just a couple of days. But they only can spend a couple of days, we're going to find out, because they need to get on the road and get down to Jerusalem in order to be there for the Passover. So they've got a larger map that you can kind of see the trajectory here. And um, I've got some red stuff that pops up. Yeah, there we go. Capernaum up at the top. You see by the Sea of Galilee. They're going to trek all the way down here to Jerusalem at the bottom. It's a pretty long journey. And kind of the trek they would take would look something like that. So um, they go up to Capernaum hang around there for a couple of days and visit perhaps with some family of some of the disciples. And then they make their way down to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And I said that wrong. I said down to Jerusalem. They actually went up to Jerusalem, even though on the map it looks like it's down because the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum is way below sea level and Jerusalem is massively above sea level. So when they went up to Jerusalem, it's not like, you know, we went up to the store. It's mean they, they went up to Jerusalem. I mean, up. It was a big up from where they were in Capernaum. So that's where they go. They, they go to Capernaum and they head up to Jerusalem. And that's where we pick up in our, in our text uh, this morning in, in chapter 2, verse 13. And we begin to, see, begin to see the setting for this miracle that Jesus is going to take. In verse 13 and 14, listen to what John says happens when they, when they get to Jerusalem. John tells us the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. All right, so this is what we need to know at this point to get the setting. Jesus goes to Jerusalem, and he goes there, and when he gets there, it's not just any day in Jerusalem, it's Passover time in Jerusalem. And Jesus heads directly to the temple. Now, do you remember what the temple was, how it functioned in Israel? Any, any clues on that, what the temple function is? Well, it functioned as, I won't wait for you to get the answer because, you know, it's a big crowd. You don't have to do that. Uh, the, the, the temple functioned as the centralized place of worship for the nation of Israel, for all Jews. Okay, we understand that part. Um, the temple was a pretty remarkable structure. Um, there's some pictures I can show you of that just to get a glimpse of what the temple looked like. Um, you, you see here kind of a model of the temple. Along the edge here is a large courtyard, and as you go through that door that you see there right in the middle, you go into what's called the Court of the Women. What's outside of that door is called the Court of the Gentiles. I'll show you a better picture of that. Um, yeah, you can see that better there. You see the Court of the Gentiles is this large court around the outside. Uh, and if you go back to the previous one for me, Josh, uh, inside those, day, those gates was the Court of the Women. And what that means is simply this outer court where the Gentiles were, is, that's as far as a Gentile could go in the temple legally. If you tried to go any further than that, you'd be killed. 
um, you just they took this stuff really seriously, and that's as far as the Gentiles could go. Jewish women and men could go in further through that door, the court of women. That was as far as Jewish women could go. Um, they could go in no further. Um, the, the further door takes you into the inner court where uh, a lot of the sacrifice took place. And uh, men could go in there. And then when you go into the, the high risen structure in the back, that takes you into the most holy place. So sometimes it's called the Holy of Holies. And uh, that was and, and it was in there that 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 symbolically the presence of God rested. Uh, you may recall, if you've read much of the Old Testament, that often we run into God uh, kind of kind of presenting himself. Uh, with the imagery of light. Are you familiar with this? Sometimes called the, she- it's the Shekinah glory of God. It's what it's called. But it's just God presenting Himself in radiant light as a visible symbol of His presence. Now we know that God is not, is not limited to any one place. He's omnipresent. We believe that about God. That He's everywhere. He knows He's everywhere at once. He's here. He's worshiping with brothers, you know, in Africa. God is everywhere at once. He is not limited by time and space. However, people are. And, Oftentimes, as his people, it's important to know that God's presence is with you, particularly in the Old Testament, uh, when he was dealing particularly with Israel. It was important that his people know that he was with them. So he would sometimes present himself in this radiant light so they could see something visibly that reminded them, okay, God is with us. Moses saw this radiating from the burning bush. Do you remember that? The presence of God in a very clear sort of a sense. And it, was, it showed up several times. you remember during the Exodus when the Israelites are coming out? you remember how God led them through the desert uh, in the daytime? And like a pillar of fire, this bright, glorious light, God led them. It was a symbol of His presence. And, and later on through the Old Testament, when the tabernacle is developed as a centralized place of worship, and then the temple... Um, uh, it, it was there that, that the Shekinah glory, the glory of God represented in visible light, descended upon the holy place of the temple particularly, and it was a symbol that God's presence rested there. And so when people were coming to the temple, in their minds it was as though they were doing what? They were coming to meet with whom? To God, because in, 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 at least symbolically that was where He was to be worshipped, and symbolically where His presence uh, dwelt, if you will. And the Lord established that for the benefit of His people. And the temple was kind of this centralized place for that in the Old Testament. Now, by the time we get to John chapter 2 and Jesus showing up at the temple, what you, what you may not recall is that the, the Shekinah glory, the glory of the Lord, the presence of the Lord had been removed long ago. Back in Ezekiel chapter 10, you can look at that your, yourself, um, because of, of, of Israel's rebellion and because of their immorality and, and their... Um, uh, their rejection, ultimately, of God. We see in, in, in Ezekiel 10, the prophet talking to us about, uh, very symbolically, he's seeing the, the, the glory of the Lord rise up out of the holy place and then go to the threshold of the temple and then ultimately go out the gate and leave altogether. It was symbolic of what had happened as a result of Israel's rebellion. God's presence was no longer residing with them in the temple. However, Jews didn't understand this, and their worship had become so corrupted at the time that they went still under the guise of meeting with God in this place. But that was the purpose of the temple, and that's why everybody still gathered there. And when Jesus gets there, it's Passover. And Passover, we won't spend too much time talking about that, but it just takes us back to Exodus. You remember in the plagues, uh, Moses... You know, God says, Moses, give my people, lead them out of Egypt, out of slavery and bondage. And Pharaoh says no. And so God brings these plagues on, Israel, on Egypt, the final one of which was this plague um, that, in which God was going to send a death angel to kill the what? You remember? 
firstborn of every family. And he had given his people, those who were faithful to him, his, his, the, the Israelites, he had, he had given them a way to be saved or rescued from this. Do you remember what that was? A sacrificial lamb was to be killed and the blood uh, painted on the doorpost of their homes. And if they did this, the death angel would pass over their home and their, uh, their, their child, their firstborn child, would be, would be saved, would, be, uh, would not be killed. And that was what the Passover celebrated. And so that happened back in Moses' day, but subsequently God had commanded that, Israel, that the Israelites commemorate this every year at what was called the Passover feast. And the one that we're dealing with here was in AD 28. And this was a massive, a massive event. I mean, Jews from everywhere came to Jerusalem for the Passover. The city would have been swelled to overflowing with people. I mean, you can imagine, um, imagine the Super Bowl next week in New York. Um, would you want to be there for that? My answer is no. I'd watch it on TV. It's warm in my home, not in New York, and the crowds are just immense. But you think of the Super Bowl crowd on steroids, and that's what you've got going on in Israel, in Jerusalem, for the Passover. I'm looking at trying to estimate the crowds. Um, one historian uh, estimates the crowd at over 250,000 men. Uh, when you add in families and people, uh, it could have easily been over a million people crowded into Jerusalem for Passover. So it would have been just wall-to-wall people uh, in the town for the Passover. And the focal point of all of this would have been what location? The temple. Because it's at the temple that you came to, to sacrifice your animals uh, uh, for the sacrifice, which was central to the worship uh, and celebration of the Passover. And so that's the scene. Uh, Jesus comes into this with his disciples and this, this mob of people at the temple, literally overflowing. And when he gets into the temple, that picture that I just showed you, when he gets into that outer court, the court of the Gentiles, what does he see? Well, he sees a bunch of people selling animals. Well, that's odd to be inside God's temple, isn't it? A bunch of people selling animals. Well, what's this all about? Well, uh, people are there selling animals because everyone who came to Jerusalem, every good Jew, uh, was required as a part of the celebration to, well, sacrifice an animal. And many people traveled from a long ways away. And if you traveled a long ways away, I mean, you always had the option of bringing your own animal, kind of B-Y-O-A, if you will. Um, But, you know, if you traveled from a long ways away... That wasn't always easy to do. I mean, you couldn't just throw the animal in the back of your minivan and drive out there. And you had to, you know, get that thing there some other way. Um, so if you came from a long ways away, it just wasn't practical or convenient to get your own animals there. And so, conveniently, they had these places set up there in Jerusalem where you could just travel. And when you got there, you could buy your own animal and then go sacrifice. And it just made the trip a whole lot better. Uh, beyond the fact that people traveled from a long ways, o- a long ways off, um, that's one of the issues. Um, the merchants were there for that purpose. But, you know, we find out later in the Gospels that these merchants are, are rather corrupt and the, the, the re- religious leaders who ruled over the temple were corrupt as well. Jesus deals with that at a later point. Um, but they had inspectors and, you know, part of the law said you, the, the animal had to be a perfect, unblemished animal. And so you can imagine how this goes down, right? You, you, suppose you do bring your own animal from, from home to the sacrifice and the inspector comes around and he looks at your animal. What do you think he's going to find? Oh, I'm sorry, sir. I'm sorry, ma'am. Did you see this right here? That's a blemish. This one is not acceptable. You're going to have to go over here to the merchant's booth, and they've got some very acceptable ones there that you could purchase. Now, what do you think the pricing structure was at the merchant booth there at Jerusalem? You ever tried to buy a Coke at Disney World? Let's just go there. 
Ron Sprevero just came back from Disney World. Am I right, Ron? Yeah. The Coke that costs you, you know, a dollar somewhere else will cost you ten bucks in Disney World. Why? Because you have nowhere else to go to get a Coke, and I've got you. This is the same kind of thing that's going on in the temple, um, except Disney World is not the temple, and it's not where God's, the worship of God is supposed to take place. There's the mouse there. But at, at this temple, this is what was going on. And there were the merchants there, and they were selling these animals at, at, at significantly marked up prices. And it was a scheme. It was a scheme uh, to, to, to pad their own pockets is what's going on. It's an example of the religious authorities getting rich on the backs of the poor people who came to sacrifice their animals. That's what it was. It was these religious leaders who were supposed to be leading God's people in worship of God, who were supposed to be caring for their spiritual needs, and instead of caring for their needs, you know what they're doing? They're ripping them off and taking advantage of them. And I'll tell you, it's an awful lot like what you see on television when you turn on any of your Christian channels and you see all these prosperity gospel preachers that populate the television screen, who are supposed to be shepherds of God's people, leading God's people towards Him, caring for their needs, and instead all they're doing is is bilking the poor and the desperate out of the last dollars that they have. You just send your money into me and you'll get a miracle. You'll get healing. Send in your money to me and God will, God will multiply it a hundredfold. And they take you to the Bible and pervert the Scriptures to try and articulate that Gospel. And these people get unbelievably rich because people send thousands of dollars into them. And they build mansions and they pad their own lifestyle and they prance around like pompous, arrogant people. Uh, and at, the, at the end of the day, they're doing nothing more than what the religious leaders were doing in, in Jesus' day. They're, they're, they're bilking the poor and the desperate uh, in order to get themselves rich. And you should never send one penny to any one of them ever. That's just the bottom line. Well, Jesus sees this. He comes and he sees this, and he's absolutely infuriated. But it's not just the animal sellers there. Who else did he tell us was there? Did you catch the other group? The money changers. And what are the money changers doing? Well, uh, same kind of deal. You had people coming from all over to Jerusalem. And not only did you have to sacrifice the animal, but you had to pay a tax. Isn't that great? Doesn't the government like to get their tax? So that's what's going on. You had to pay a tax. But you had to pay your tax in a very particular kind of coinage. It had to be Tyrian coinage. A Tyrian shekel. Got a picture of that. You can see what it looks like. Something like that. And so you can imagine people coming from all over the place, from all over the known world at the time, converging upon Jerusalem Temple for this tax paying. But you had to pay in that currency, and people brought their own currency from all over the place. So, of course, you had to have some money changers there who could take your currency and, and exchange it for the right kind of Tyrian coinage so that you could go pay your tax. And they used this kind because of the purity of its silver, and it was a reliable currency. That's really all you need to know about that. Um, but you can imagine that these uh, money changers at the temple were not just doing this out of the kindness of their heart, right? Oh, you dear worshiper, let me help you out here, my friend. For 12%, I'll help you out here, my friend. And where do you think that 12% went? Well, to the money changer, to the religious leaders who were in charge of the whole enterprise, um, to the whole thing. And so what's happening, once again, uh, uh, people are coming to to the place where the worship of God is supposed to take place, and they're getting ripped off left and right by the religious leaders. That's what's happening. Now, previously, all this enterprise had been going on, and it had been going on across the Kidron Valley on the, kind of the slopes of the Mount of Olives. That's where it had previously taken place. Now, obviously, let me, this is worth saying. These are some legitimately needed services, right? It is important to have somewhere where people could buy animals if they have to sacrifice and they can't bring their own. It's important to have a place where you can have your money exchanged and pay the right tax. 
Those are important, legitimate enterprises. The problem isn't with the enterprise itself. The problem is, is with the ripoff that was taking place in the midst of them. And the worst problem that Jesus is going to deal with is where it was happening. You see, what used to take place across the Kidron Valley had now been transported where? Right inside the temple. Right inside the temple. That's the key phrase of the text. In the temple. This is where it's happening. And you can imagine them rationalizing, well, it's just more convenient here, right? I mean, people have to go to the temple. Why do you want to walk all the way across the valley to go buy your animal? We can just do it right here in the temple. People are already here. We've got all this space. We can just do it right here. It'd be very convenient. It'd be much easier for everybody. And so that's what they've done. And the court of the Gentiles in the temple had become a mixture between a flea market and a stock market. And when Jesus comes to Jerusalem and he walks into the temple, the place where the worship of God is supposed to be taking place, he sees a swarm of people, animals making noise all over the place, the money changers jingling their change at the tables, everything but what? The worship of God taking place. It was supposed to be a place where people could could come in reverence and awe before God, where they could pray, where they could worship, where they could honor the Lord. And it had been turned into a marketplace. And this was all done under the leadership of a former high priest by the name of Annas, who had uh, considerable influence. So Jesus comes in and he sees all this going on. So how does he react? And this is where the scene takes place in verse 15 and 16. Listen to this. Here's what happens. Making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and he overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Jesus is livid at what he sees. By the way, this is, this is like our favorite text for us when we blow up at somebody, right? Isn't that right? You know, you've done it, right? Go ahead, smile. I know you've done it. You know, you, you blow up, your anger comes out, you spout off your mouth at somebody, you have a temper tantrum, and you think you're fully justified in it. And when you get called on it, you say, well, what? Jesus got angry. He threw the money changers out of the temple. Yeah, this is one of our go-to texts for that, right? Never mind that Jesus' anger was always pure and holy, and ours is, well, never, for the most part. Uh, But it is the go-to text for that. But we're going to see that's not what this is about. Jesus is livid. He is furious at what, what he sees going on. And it's so disturbing to him, he absolutely has to act. He simply cannot sit back and look at this one more time and not do something about it. Now, he's been here before for Passover, right? He's been here, no doubt. He's a good Jewish man. He's been to the Passover. He's seen this scene before. But what's changed now? He's no longer Mary's son, being an obedient son to his parents. He's now what? He's now engaged in his messianic ministry. And he's no, we saw this last week, right? He's no longer Mary's son obeying his parents. He's now the Messiah of God coming to do what he came to do. And so everything's changed, and this time he's not going to tolerate it. So he makes a whip, and he drives them all out. And that would have been easy to do because the animals were everywhere, and they were tied up by cords. So he just goes, grabs them up, and puts them together. And Jesus just goes through that place, cracking that whip, and uh, running everybody out. I mean, it is a flash of divine fury, unlike anything we see from Jesus any other time in his ministry. I mean, Jesus is divinely furious and he drives everyone out with a whip can you can imagine the scene can't you 
You can imagine the scene. I mean, it's just a normal Passover. All these people are everywhere, crowded shoulder to shoulder in this place. All the merchants are doing their thing. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, here comes this guy with a whip. And he just starts popping it everywhere, flipping the tables over and running everybody out. You can imagine everybody just would have done what? They just would have been scattering in every direction. You can imagine people running this way and that. You can imagine the animals and sheep and, you know, scurrying all around and going everywhere. It would have been sheer chaos. And Jesus runs them clear out of the place. He clears the place out completely. And you know what's remarkable about what John tells us about this event? Nobody, and I mean nobody, tries to do what? Stop him. Isn't that remarkable? You would think somebody would. I mean, how hard would it be? He's one man. And he's got a whip. I mean, it's just an improvised little whip. It's not even like a, you know, big weapon. I mean, you just think somebody bigger than him could have at least grabbed him or a couple of guys could have tackled him down or something would have happened, but nobody even tries. The temple police had a force of somewhere between 250 and 300 temple police on site at the temple all the time. They don't try to stop him. Why? I don't know why, except to say this, that when Jesus engaged in this, it was clear that what was going on was not just a man running around with a whip. There was something divine about what was happening. And he did this with such authority and such power that nobody dared to even try to stop him. And he clears the place right out. Nobody even tries. Flips over the money changers. You can imagine those money changers scurrying around trying to grab their coins at the same time trying to run away. I mean, can you imagine? What about the disciples that had gone with him? I mean, you're just hanging out with Jesus and going to the temple. And all of a sudden... He starts doing this. Can you see their eyes getting that big, right? What is he doing? He's going to get us killed here. Well, Jesus does this, and he's, he's done. You can imagine. He's done. The place is empty. Commerce has come to a screeching halt. And the court of Gentiles is quiet. Something that hasn't been in a long time. Jesus clears the place out. What an incredible, incredible act this was. And it was all done in public, and it was done on the busiest day of the year busiest day of the year i told you this would have been an event to be remembered and it was remembered a couple of years later mark chapter 14 jesus is arrested and he's being put on trial you remember this they bring some false witnesses forward in his trial a couple of years later and what do they talk about in the trial well mark tells us some stood up and bore false witness against him what do they say we heard him say, I'll destroy this temple that's made with hands, and in three days I'll build another not made with hands. See, Jesus says something similar to that in just a little bit here, John's going to tell us. A couple of years later, they're still talking about this. When Jesus is on the cross in Mark chapter 15, um, we find that when he's on the cross, there are mockers that are coming by, and they're still referencing this, what Jesus says on this particular day in this particular event. And when you get over into Acts chapter 6 and Stephen is being stoned, they're still talking about this event. I mean, this thing would have been memorable. You would have not forgotten, if you were anywhere near that place, what took place. Now, um, let, me, let me make another note here that's important. Just if you're studying your Bible, and sometimes we run across this question, the synoptic gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, also record an event where Jesus clears out the temple, and it sounds very similar to this event. Um, there's a lot of sort of theological debate out there about how to make all that work together. Uh, and the reason is because John gives us this at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospel writers, when they talk about this event, it's at the very end of his ministry, um, it really some of his last days before his arrest. 
So, um, critics say, look, you know, these gospel writers are making this stuff up. They can't get their story straight. Uh, theologians argue about it, and they say, well, um, John just, you know, John isn't concerned about timing. It's the same event. John just, just tells it in a different sequence. Um, but there are many, and I find myself among this crowd, who believe that what happens here is actually this. Jesus does this twice. It happens twice. It happens early in his ministry here, and then later in his ministry, a couple of years later, he comes back through again, and, and, all the, and all the enterprises set back up again, and Jesus reacts very similarly on that day. He says some different things at that time as well. Um, so that's, uh, that's my take on it. I think it's the best way to understand the difference there, is there's two times Jesus clears the temple. We're looking at the first one. So why is Jesus so ticked off? I mean, why is he so angry? Why does he, why is he, why does he just say something rather than grab a whip and start going, you know, all whippy on him? That's not a word. Uh, verse 17 of chapter 2, John tells us why. John says, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, we don't have time to go back to Psalm 69 very much, but it was a psalm of David. Let me just give you a quick synopsis. Psalm of David. And, and David's big concern uh, in this psalm is, is he has a motive for zeal for God's house. And God's house is, is not being honored as it should. And David is zealous for that. And he's crying out against it. And he's being persecuted for trying to defend the honor of God in his place in Psalm 69. And so this psalm, we find out, is not just about David. It's messianic. That is to say, it has a, it's a prophecy that speaks to us also about how the Messiah, Christ, is going to feel. And so the disciples make this connection that what Jesus is doing and what motivates him is the same thing that was motivating David back then. God's name in the worship of God is being dishonored, and he simply cannot tolerate it. That it hurts him to see God dishonored. You know, uh, John MacArthur comments, and I think rightly so, that that's a, that's a good sign of spiritual maturity. When what dishonors God hurts you, that's a sign that you mature spiritually. Because people who know and love God and are mature, are, 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 they feel it when God's name and God's honor and God's character is dishonored or perverted. And so that's what's going on here. And this is Jesus is furious. I mean, when you think in terms of who is Christ, he is God in flesh. He's going to the, the house that's set up for the worship of him, and it's turned into a marketplace. There's no worship. There's no prayer. There's no even concern for that. It's just all, it's all commerce and wicked commerce at that. The one thing that should have been going on in the temple at Passover was worship, and it was the one thing that wasn't going on. And he's livid about it. R.C. Sproul comments, he says this, Imagine if you went to church on a Sunday morning and went in the sanctuary to pray, but you couldn't focus your thoughts because of the loud and persistent bleeding of sheep and goats. That's what's going on in the temple. The sacred grounds that had been set apart for worship had become chaotic. Yes, the people's needs were being met. I'm sure the temple authorities were saying, Oh, we're just trying to be relevant. We're just trying to be seeker-sensitive for those who can't bring their lambs from home and who need their money exchanged. But in their efforts to make these procedures easy and convenient for the people... They had impacted, and I would say inhibited, the people's ability to do what? To worship. That's the issue. True, genuine, heartfelt worship had been replaced by commerce. Can I just say this? God cares about what happens when His people come together to worship Him. Can we just say it that simply? God cares about what happens in that context. 
Now, there are people in our culture who will run around and tell you, that, hey, we can do whatever we want. It doesn't really matter what you do as long as you have good motives or something. God doesn't really care about how he's to be worshipped. But I would argue to you that that's not the case, that God cares very much about how he's to be worshipped. And he cares very much about how he's to be approached. And he has, he has kind of laid that out in Scripture. What are the appropriate ways to approach him and what are not appropriate ways to approach him? And Judaism was so far from what God had intended for them at that temple, so far from the kind of worship that he had, he had designed for them to be involved in. Jesus is livid. You know, just a little note here. This happens in the court of the Gentiles. This was set up by God because Israel was supposed to be a light to him, to the Gentiles. That was their missionary purpose. God had called them to, to, to be missionaries to the Gentile world on his behalf. And the court of the Gentiles was the only place Gentiles could go to meet with God. And these guys cared so little about that purpose. They cared so little about all the lost Gentiles who would be in that city. He cared so little about them meeting God that they didn't care about filling up the whole court with commerce. So no Gentile could ever meet God there. That's how far they were from what God had intended for them. And it was all being done under the guise of worship, and it was wrong. And so Jesus, Jesus turns the place upside down. He says something in the middle of it. He says, you've turned my father's house. He speaks to this temple as whose house? His father's house. It's worth noting, um, no Jew would have ever said that. No, no Jew would have ever called God my father. They never, ever did that. That would be understood to be blasphemous. It would be, it would be equivalent to saying, I'm on equal footing with God. I'm his equal. How do you know that? In John chapter 5, verse 17, a little further over in John's Gospel. In this case, the religious authorities are so shocked they don't even deal with that. But in John chapter 5, later they deal with it. Jesus answered, said, my father is working, once again, calling Jesus and calling God his father. And I'm working. That's why the Jews were seeking the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was doing what? He was calling God his own father, which is the same as making himself equal to God. When he shouted out, you've turned my father's house into a place of commerce or into a, uh, into a, 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 a marketplace, whenever he says this, he is making a declaration about himself. He's saying, this place belongs to me. It's another way of saying I'm the Messiah, declaring his Messiahship. And Jesus says that, and he knows full well what he's saying. And, 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 and boy, he lays it out there pretty quickly. Well, when the dust settles, verse 18 uh, what happens? The Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. I told you initially when he's going through this, nobody resists him, but that doesn't last long. Once the place is cleared out and everybody's got a chance to get their heads cleared, these religious leaders were not going to tolerate this. I mean, their business on the best day for business has been shut down. And every minute that that temple is empty, they're doing what? They are losing money. They are losing, they're, they're losing shekel by the minute. So... Once they regain their senses, they confront Jesus. They finally approach him. And here's what they say. What sign do you show us for doing these things? Very interesting. 
They don't challenge what he's done. They don't challenge what he's done. You know what they're challenging? His authority to do it. Uh, that translation of that, what sign will you show us is, on whose authority do you do this? In other words, this is our temple. We rule this place. We set the rules. We enforce the rules. We're God's people who've been set up in this place. On what authority do you come in here and turn it all upside down and usurp our authority? Now, it's clear that they didn't pay attention to what he said because he's already answered their question before they asked it, hasn't he? He's already said, this is my father's house. You might have some delegated authority here from from my father in the past, but this house belongs to me. That's the authority on which I do it. But they don't hear any of that. They want him to to give some sort of a sign. They want him to do something miraculous. They want him to, to make something explode in the sky. They want some sort of a heavenly sign that would verify or validate his authority to turn over the temple. And you know, we see this with these guys all through the Gospels. Jesus heals uh, uh, lame people he heals blind people he even raises dead people and these guys still come after him saying show us a sign show us a sign and you know what there's no sign that he could ever show them that would satisfy them that's how unbelief works when you're entrenched in unbelief you ask for a sign to validate who jesus is but there's no sign that'll ever satisfy rank unbelief you can present all the signs you want and unbelief is still blind to the truth jesus says i'll give you a sign Here's the sign. And he gives it to him as a riddle. He says, destroy this temple. And what? Did you catch it? And I will raise it up three days later. Interesting. Interesting. Destroy this temple. Now, when he says destroy this temple, who is he talking to? He's talking to religious leaders. They don't catch this, but what he's really saying is, you destroy this temple, you do it, and then I will do what? Raise it up. Now, what do they think he's talking about? They think he's talking about that building I showed you in the picture earlier, right? And they're saying, are you kidding me? You're a joke, man. It's taken 46 years to build this place. And by the way, it still wasn't complete. It was still being built on for years after this event. It didn't get finished until right about the time it got destroyed. So how about that? 46 years and you're going you're to build this thing in three days? Impossible. You're a joke is what they're saying to him. But what they didn't know was what? Jesus wasn't talking about that building. He was talking about a different temple, wasn't he? He was talking about the temple of his own body. He was saying to them, you, you destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. They don't know that. This is one of Jesus' early encounters with these guys. The best we can tell, they haven't even hatched the plan in the furthest recesses of their minds to kill him yet. And yet Jesus here says what? You're going to kill me, and I'm going to be raised. Here's the sign. You want a sign? Here's the sign you're going to get. When you destroy me, I'll be raised up in three days. That's a sign. You want a sign that I am who I say I am, that I'm the Messiah? You'll get the resurrection. That's a sign you'll get. And you know what? They still won't believe it. Still won't believe it. But Jesus gave them this as a riddle. He knew they wouldn't understand it. And he did that on purpose. Chuck Swindoll says this. He says, Jesus didn't waste his words on people who didn't want to hear. And that's true. He didn't speak in order to convince the skeptic or sway the dissenter. His words were intended to divide his audience into two groups. Those who have receptive hearts and those who have hard hearts. He understood that hearing him is not an intellectual process, but it's a crisis of the will. And several times throughout the story, that's Jesus' story, when Jesus says something cryptic, some people think they understand him and they turn away, while others admit their confusion and end up what? Drawing near. That's why Jesus spoke like this often. 
to divide the group into those who are full of rank unbelief, into those who are receptive to the message. And he always entrusted himself to those who are receptive, and he never gave what they wanted to the people who asked for more. That's how it always works. Jesus says you'll get the resurrection. That's the only sign you'll get. It's, it's, it's an interesting irony. Jesus has just cleansed this temple temporarily. When he leaves and the next Passover comes, it goes right back to the same. Jesus here has temporarily cleansed this temple, but what he's saying here is one day I'm gonna, I am going to replace it. Do you get that? What I've done now is just temporary. I've just cleansed this place for a moment, but I'm going to die. You're going to destroy me, and I'm going to be raised again, and at that moment this temple and everything that happens here will die and cease to have any meaning, and I become the temple. I become the, the dwelling place of God, and if you want to worship God, you'll worship me. That's what Jesus is saying. It's remarkable what he's saying, if you catch it. It's an unbelievable event, isn't it? Would you like to have seen this event? I would have liked to have seen this. This is one of the Bible stories that if I had like my, my little time machine in my office that I could jump in and punch a date, A.D. 28 would definitely be on my top ten list. Of play. You ever see that movie, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure? Anybody ever see that movie? That's going back a long ways. If you saw it, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, I had a time machine. Anyway. It's probably on Netflix or something if you want to watch it. Uh, you can probably think of other ways to spend that hour and a half, but better ways. But if you're looking for something to do. If I had a time machine, this would be one of the places I'd want to go. I'd want to see this. I'd want to watch this interaction. I'd want to hear the tone in Jesus' voice when he spoke, and I'd like to see their reaction. I really would. But John doesn't give it to us for entertainment value, does he? He doesn't give us any of these stories for that. John is after this. He's after convincing you that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, that he's God in flesh, and that you must believe on him. So how does this story, what does John want us to take from this story that advances that goal? Let me just give you a quick list, because I think they're obvious. I think the first thing John wants us to see here is this, that God cares about how he's worshipped. God cares about how he's worshipped. He does. Jesus is concerned about how we worship him. I think he's concerned about it corporately, and he's concerned about it individually. I mean, that was the main issue here. The true worship of God had been perverted, and it had been replaced, and it had been corrupted with something else. And, and there are those in our day who act like it doesn't matter what we do in the presence of God. Everything is fair game, whether it be drunken laughter or nonsensical running around or any other sort of clamor in the presence of the Lord as though anything can be called worship and it doesn't matter. Well, it does matter. Christ does care about how he's approached and he does care about how he's worshipped. It does matter. There are appropriate ways to come before the Lord with awe and with reverence, even with overflowing joy and gratitude at what God has done, but not with clamor and commerce and madness. John MacArthur says, Nothing enraged Jesus with holy anger and fury like irreverence. And that's what was going on here. These are the most severe things that Jesus did in his entire life, and they were done against hypocritical worship. God cares about how he's approached, and he cares about how we worship him. When we come in and we, we replace the genuine worship of God with any other venture, we've perverted the worship of God, and we're in danger of Christ coming to us with a whip and overturning our false worship. Psalm 51, the psalmist writes this, 
For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You'd not be pleased with a burnt offering. But the sacrifices of God are what? A broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart. That God will never despise. The kind of attitude that God desires in people who come before Him. And today, all across the, the world, people are gathering in churches and they do all sorts of other things besides worship God in spirit and truth. They put themselves in danger of the judgment of God. But beyond that, privately, God cares about the worship of our life because He tells us later on in the New Testament that our bodies are what? Temples of the Holy Spirit, the dwelling place of God. He cares about what goes on in our bodies and what we do, how we offer up our temples for worship to Him. Jesus could walk into your life right now what kind of things would he want to overturn in your temple that's a good question to ask if you're looking for some sort of personal application this morning he cares about how he's worshipped let me mention a couple other things our time's up Jesus' divine power is evidence of his deity we saw this last week but the power and the authority with which Jesus pulls this off no other human being could have done it it was a miracle it was a clear sign of his divine power and authority it was unmistakable what he did if you had seen it on that day It's an evidence, John says, that he is who he claims to be. Thirdly, Jesus' omniscience, his divine omniscience. That is to say that he knows everything. He knows what these men are going to ask him before they ever ask it. He knows that they're going to ultimately have him crucified and killed. And he knows that he's going to be raised three days later. What man could possibly know those things this far in advance? Nobody is the answer. You're sleepier, you would have just said that. Nobody could know that. Only God knows that. And John is wanting us to see that. He's wanting you to see that. This is no man. This is God in flesh. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He knows all things. And finally, I think he wants us to see this also like we saw last week. This is the ultimate mission of Jesus previewed. The ultimate mission previewed. Jesus has come to replace the whole Old Testament ceremonial system. He has come to replace that. That's why you and I aren't at a temple this morning, right? That's why we don't have our animals to sacrifice. Thank the Lord. We don't need an animal to sacrifice. Why? Because the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world has already been slain once and for all. And His, and his sacrifice is sufficient for all who would come to Him in faith to cover their sins and to cleanse their heart. See, He's come to replace all of that In His body, in His death, in His resurrection, Jesus renders the whole Old Testament ceremonial system invalid and unmeaningful. And although that kind of worship has continued up to this day, although there is no temple that's been rebuilt, it's invalid and it's meaningless because Christ has replaced the temple. When we look at the cross, we see the end of that whole system. And there's no more vivid symbol of that than when Jesus dies and that veil that separates the most holy place from everything else, what happens to it? It rips from top to bottom. It's God's way of saying this thing is over. This thing is exposed for what it is. There's no longer a barrier between me and you. You come to me through my son who's just died on the cross and that's your access to me because I dwell in him, not in this building. You know, shortly after all this happens, A.D. 70, that temple, that temple itself is ultimately destroyed. Later, when Jesus cleanses this temple, he says to them, this thing's coming down, and not two, there's not going to be one stone left on top of another. And by A.D. 70, that's exactly what happens. And to this day, it's never been rebuilt again. 
you go over there today, you can see something called the Wailing Wall. Maybe you've seen that on TV. It's just it's part of a retaining wall that surrounded the temple area, but there is not one stone on top of another that was part of that original temple anywhere because God declared it wasn't going to happen because of this very kind of junk. And that's exactly what he did. God cares about how he's worshipped. And Jesus came to die on a cross that any human being who wants to can come to God through him. And if you're here this morning and you don't know him as your Lord and Savior, then you need to hear what John is trying to communicate to you and what I'm trying to communicate in communicating what John communicated. That makes sense? Think about it over lunch, it will. When you look at the cross of Jesus Christ, you see not just a man who's dead. You see not just a prophet who gave his life. You see God in human flesh shedding his blood as the Lamb of God who takes away your sin. If you will believe on him as John calls you to, confess your sin and turn from it and entrust your life to him. His blood will be sufficient to cover your every misdeed, your darkest sin washed clean, eternal life your reward, and a new life from this day forward. You can have that today if you don't. But you can only have it by coming through Christ. There is no other temple. There is no other way except through Him. Let's pray together. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed before we pray, I'm going to slip to the back of the sanctuary. and In a moment, we're going to sing a song together. And If you want me to if you'd like for me to pray with you or you just have some questions about what it means to know Christ or about what we talked about this morning, come back there. I'd love to talk with you, pray with you. Lord Jesus, we, are, we stand in awe at this, what we read about you today. We stand in awe of your power, uh, your authority to do such a thing. It's unimaginable. Uh, we, we, we stand in awe of your, of your omniscience, the fact that you know all things. It's a clear indication that you are exactly who you said you were, the Messiah, the Son of God. And we know that you're the one who ultimately died as the perfect lamb who ended the sacrificial system on our behalf so that we don't have to bring some animal and sacrifice it every week that we can simply come before you. And by what was purchased through your shed blood, we could find eternal life, forgiveness, acceptance. we can find a right relationship reconciled to our Heavenly Father. Father, I pray if there's someone who's not experienced that here this morning, that you would draw them to yourself and that they would find that today. That they would find in you everything that they've ever needed and answer to everything that they've ever wanted. And Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to worship you and we pray that our worship has been acceptable to you this morning. Make us mindful of that, Lord. For those of us who know you, who have entrusted our lives to you, make, make us even this morning reflect on how we approach you, on how we worship you. That we might worship you in spirit and in truth with appropriate reverence and awe and gratitude. And not pervert our worship and subject ourselves to your judgment. Lord, you convict us as you see fit. And we'll respond in faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus' name.